Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and today I'm joined by site publisher Chris Cartman, as well as staff reporters Max Madden and Jack Harris. Guys, how are we doing today? Rob, I'm doing great. Uh, fresh off a trip to Morgantown, West Virginia. Have you ever been there, Rob? I've never been to Morgantown, West Virginia. How'd it go? Well, I asked my dad, because he went there, what the regional uh, delicacy was, and he told me pepperoni rolls, which <laughs> were not very good. At least the ones that I had. Did it's West just Virginia a bread win? and and pepperoni and, and cheese. Did, did West Virginia win, though? Uh, they did, comfortably, by 16 over Kansas. Hey, Max, did you see any There's couches get burned? <laughs> no, I did not, unfortunately. I was pretty disappointed. Damn, that's like the whole point of going to Morgantown. Well, sadly, this isn't a Big 12 podcast. Uh, actually, one about ASU. And on this episode, we're going to have a breakdown of ASU short yardage situations against Colorado in their loss. Some key back pocket plays or lack thereof. Chris wrote about that on the site. And the status of senior quarterback Manny Wilkins, Colorado wide receiver Lavishka Chanel's impact, and, and what this loss does for ASU season, and how the the league, the Pac-12, did in Week 6. Some other news and notes about ASU men's basketball. That is going to be coming up on the member podcast, so you guys should tune into that. That will be debuted, or that will be coming out later this week. We're going to start with the ASU offense, though, and before we get into a full breakdown of the offense and, and how they did uh, as a unit in this game, I want to go right into the fourth down situation, the fourth and goal from the three-yard line with Colorado leading 28-21, 14 left to play in the fourth quarter. Let's give this drive some context after Colorado took its first lead of the game on a Lavishka Chanel one-yard touchdown run from the Sparky formation. ASU started its next drive with a, a touchback on the 25-yard line. Wilkins had the 72-yard completion of Frank Darby down to the three-yard line where it looked like Darby was running sideways when he maybe should have been running straight. You know, Benjamin then had a one-yard run. Manny Wilkins then bobbles a snap, double clutches it, and takes an eight-yard sack by Mustafa Johnson. ASU takes a timeout that Wilkins seemed to be very upset about, and then Wilkins... Uh, comes back and throws a, uh, a seven-yard completion to Kyle Williams. And on fourth and goal, Wilkins throws a jump ball to sophomore Curtis Hodges that Hodges couldn't pull in. Seemed like a, ple- uh, a questionable play call. Likens said, if you can't score from the three, you don't deserve to win. How did you guys break down the play calling in that sequence? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting when you say, well, we have to score from the three, but then you throw it to a guy who... You know, over the course of two years now, what does he have? One touchdown catch? Like he he has not proven to be a reliable red zone target. And that that touchdown catch was like a slant. Yeah, it wasn't even a fade yeah. route. And and I think like Curtis Hodges, he has size, but like when you watch him play, he doesn't he doesn't move particularly gracefully on that route. The the fourth down, he was kind of like leaning on one of the defensive backs earlier in the game when he did get some sort of separation. He he his hands didn't look good. He couldn't bring down the ball. Um, I think this is something, like going back to last year, people were questioning why they were using Curtis Hodges so much in the red zone. Even on the Pac-12 broadcast, the the announcers, they point out, oh, Curtis Hodges is on the field, look for the ball to go to him. So it just, it wasn't very creative. When we saw, like going back to preseason camp, we saw ASU spend a lot of time working on different sorts of red zone plays and things like that. Fades to, to Curtis Hodges weren't or wasn't one of them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yes, you should be able to score from the three if you want to win tight games in the conference. Um, and there was some, like you mentioned, Rob, some missed execution before the fourth down play. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think everybody can agree that wasn't, that wasn't the best, most high percentage play call they could have gone with. Yeah, and I think that the reason you throw it to a guy like Curtis Hodges is because of the size mismatch, and it's about generating separation. But if you watch that play, if you rewatch that play, uh, you know, Curtis Hodges doesn't release quickly enough, doesn't create any separation, and then goes actually, 
is, is just not physical enough at the catch point uh, and leans on the defensive back, as Jack noted. So, I mean, that that's not the play. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, but that's not the play call that that is that has really ever worked for ASU, and I don't think that that's the right call in that situation. A few things. Um, first, let's back up and let's talk about the second down play, the ASU's at the two-yard line, mm-hmm. under center. They had scored on a run from this same formation earlier. So now they're trying to show that again, but then throw this quick boot action where you slip the back past the linebacker really quickly. Wilkins double-clutched the snap, which what Rob Lykins said after the game ruined the timing of the play. I, I don't. Benjamin seemed to slip. I don't think he was open anyways. Uh, and then the the backer was on Wilkins so quickly that he ended up taking the sack. They got into a formation but took a timeout right before the, the play clock was going to expire. Wilkins was upset, as you said there, Rob. Um, part of the problem was they, they, were, they didn't have the right personnel grouping mm-hmm. because they weren't expecting to take a loss and be in a, a long situation, third and goal from a, a long distance. Uh, I think the other thing that we have to talk about that we haven't is whether or not ASU should have even gone for it on fourth down. Mm-hmm. You have almost 14 minutes left in the game. It's a one-touchdown game. Colorado had been moving the ball reasonably well. There's a good chance that Colorado is able to come back and get at least a field goal on its next possession. There's still enough time for maybe three or four possessions potentially in this game. It didn't work out that way. I personally think if that's going to be your play call, when you have Nikhil Harry's gimpy, he's on the other side of the formation as a decoy at best. They had gone to Hodges earlier in the game, as everybody knows, on a slot fade. That the ball was right in his hands, and he ends up dropping. And it was another end zone shot, yep. So I I think that I wrote on the site, it's, it's a premium article, but I hope everybody checks it out. You got to have what I call your back pocket plays. You got to have this every coordinator has on his play sheet going into a game this is the play or two plays in this situation down distance that gets us what we need that the other team hasn't seen and won't be prepared for. Usually it's a misdirection of some kind. It's a different, it's a different type of formation. Remember Michigan State, they brought out the four wide receivers. They messed up the Spartans on that. Right. They didn't have one of those against San Diego State on the fourth and one that they went for. They, this was, a, this was a, a, at the three-yard line, like a long three to go. I really think that that play that they that they called in that situation, the Curtis Hodges jump ball, is at best at best a 50-50 situation. You cannot do a 50-50 situation when you have the ability to get an easy three points with 14 minutes left in the game. When you know that there's going to be probably more points scored in the game, no matter what it ends up being. So mm-hmm. Herm Edwards and Lycan said after the game, look. If you can't score on that there, you don't deserve to win. And if you can't stop them, you don't deserve to win. And all that stuff. But you can't say this is going to be our MO as a team. And yet, that's what you end up doing in that situation. Yeah, I didn't have so much a problem with them going for it on that fourth down. Especially because... You do if that was the play call. Well, yeah, yes. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the, the, the key point here is that... You know they've they've said from week one that they want to be aggressive. Uh, the defense wasn't doing a great job stopping Colorado already, and you know over the last couple of weeks ASU's defense has struggled to to get themselves off the field quickly. So I, I think the coaches kind of felt like 
who knows the next time we're going to be down inside the 20 again, inside the 10 again. Right. When you're on the three, you got to go for it. But yeah. But then you just, can't, if you yeah. can't get a stop, then you don't deserve to win anyways. <laughs> you can get a stop yeah. the last 750 yes. in the game. Yeah. Well, yeah, but there was 13, 1350 left. And like what I would say, you have, you have a lot of playmakers on offense. You've seen right. Manny Wilkins be able to score that close to the goal line on zone read stuff. Eno Benjamin, obviously, has been very good the last couple weeks. Um, Kyle Williams is a dependable guy. Like, you have all these guys. It, just, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great play call. Yeah. And, and it's something, I mean, the field goal, Chris, you're talking about, it goes back to the San Diego State game. They were 14-7 in that game with, I believe it was under two minutes to go in the second quarter. They could have kicked a field goal that would have been about a 40-yarder. And with Brandon Reese, I feel like you feel pretty good about something like that. They ultimately did not. They did not uh, convert the fourth down, and they ultimately gave up a touchdown to tie the game before half. And I think it's just something that, you know, we're seeing a little bit of how Herm Edwards goes about this and and his kind of feeling on it. But there are situations where you could get points for sure, and ASU is coming away with nothing. Yeah, it's just really... People are going to say, rightly so, that's your play call. That's your play call. Throw the ball to he, – he dropped the ball earlier. He was 0 for 3 on targets in the game. Yeah. He has one catch on the season. You have to have some type of a play. Nikhil Harry, direct snap to a throw, an option toss, a throwback to a tight end. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of things that you can do that, that Colorado has not seen from you all season. Right. I will probably have a problem defending. That that just requires a guy to beat a guy. You can't do it. And, and Chris made the point in the story he referenced where Billy Napier was good at having these kind of play calls down here. Great. Yeah. Not even good. Great. Yeah. And like if you're going to have, like as a coaching staff, if you're going to have the philosophy of we're going to be aggressive in these situations, you better have better play calls to go to. Right. You need to know like – Right. We're gonna we're gonna take some some risks. Let's make sure we have some creative things that we can call. He didn't just have the secretariat and the Sparky, but they also had the back pocket plays in yeah. those situations that they unveiled time they and again. Perfect on the season, other than the the kneels against Washington. Correct. Um, and moving to more of a holistic view of the offense for this game, 367 total yards for the offense for ASU, 222 through the air, 145 on the ground. ASU was 5-11, and 11, converting on third down, 0 of 1 on that fourth down we were just talking about. They held the ball for 26 and a half minutes, time of possession. And ASU seemed to be running the ball very well, very effectively early in the game, staying on schedule as they were trying to do with sophomore Eno Benjamin. He ran the ball 20 times for 96 yards and two touchdowns in the first. First half, Benjamin had just eight carries for 24 yards in the second half as ASU seemed to stall out. What do you guys think changed? Yeah, so like they went from averaging 4.4 yards a carry in the first half to 2.3, and I think there are a couple things here. One, um, the ASU ran the ball a little bit differently than they had in past weeks. You saw more of the formations where there were two wing tight ends to either side, which is something that worked very effectively against Colorado last year. There was a lot more zone concept which is something that Colorado struggled to, to handle against Nebraska when Adrian Martinez did pretty well in the zone read kind of things. And then UCLA, obviously, with Chip Kelly's whole offensive scheme. Um, and I think ASU saw that in the first half. They ran well, like you mentioned, Rob, and it, and it worked because they were able to control the ball. Um, their time in the possession was in the first half was over 16 minutes. Right. In the second half, a, a, a couple things happened, I thought. One, um, as we were watching the film earlier today, is – you know, Colorado just they, they made small changes on the defensive line where they line guys up 
and, and all it did was when you're when you're in zone concepts, there, there's a there's a lot of responsibility on the lineman to know exactly what space you're you're supposed to be blocking to. And when the linemen in front of you move just a little bit, it can mess some of that stuff up. Mm-hmm. It can lead to breakdowns, and that's where you saw uh, Colorado. I mean, there just weren't as big a holes for for Eno Benjamin to run through. Right. Linebackers were able to fill in. Defensive backs were able to fill in. Um, and, and I mean, something as simple as that, it starts to put you in, in second and third and longs. That coupled with Nikhil Harry being hurt, you lose your top passing option through the air. Their pass protection wasn't really great throughout the day. Um, all those things kind of mixed together. They still have the touchdown on the first drive. They still get near the goal line on the drive we just talked about. So it wasn't as if they're offensively it was a disaster, but they weren't on the field for nearly as long. Right. They were on the field for you know 10-some minutes in the second half, um, and they, they just didn't execute at a high enough level to, to keep up when, when their defense, which we'll talk about in a minute, wasn't, wasn't playing and wasn't getting themselves off the field well. Yeah, Jack, I think that, as you mentioned, it was just a combination of a lot of things. I don't think there's any one thing that you can point to. I think Colorado gave ASU's offensive line a bunch of different looks that it maybe wasn't prepared to, uh, you know, to go against, and, and that's some of the struggles that there, there weren't as many holes for Eno Benjamin to go uh, to go through in the second half. So there's a lot of improvisation, and he's been pretty elusive at, at, at points this season. Uh, but, you know, you need help from the offensive line to get, establish any sort of run game. I also think Nikhil Harry's absence, obviously, uh, you know, with – Having his injury outside of Nikhil Harry, the Sun Devils don't really have a possession receiver that is dominated, or you know, a number two go-to option. We were talking about it earlier. Uh, how Kyle Williams hasn't been involved uh, as much uh, this season so far, so that really limits the ability of of the passing game. You know, when you're sending guys like Tommy Hudson into the flat and having to take deeper shots with Frank Darby, the offense just overall isn't going to be as efficient without that number one receiver. I had a, f- a few thoughts in rewatching this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the second half, ASU did a really nice job with the first series of opening up with some of the play actions that they could use after they had established the run in the first half. So, so they come out, they run the bootleg um, from under center, get it to Darby for 19 yards. Um, then on the next drive, they do the same thing on first down and get a uh, a pass to Kyle Williams for 13 yards. So both of those drives started off good. The first one uh, ended, of course, with the, the 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 touchdown to Darby. The second one didn't end so so well, and that's because uh, after that initial completion to Kyle Williams, we saw ASU go three plays and, and end up going backwards. And it was what what Jack was talking about on first down with the end moving from a four eye to a three technique. And then ASU having a problem blocking that, which led to a no-gain play mm-hmm. on an Eno Benjamin run. Um, and then that put ASU behind schedule. What we saw in the in the first half was ASU converted five of six third downs. They were all short to medium yardage except for one. And then in this second half, ASU converted no third downs. And it was behind schedule to the point where five of those, I believe, six third down attempts yep. were, were medium or long. And... and so what ended up happening is Colorado realized, okay, we're just going to load the box. And then especially after Nikhil Harry got hurt on the punt return, ASU didn't take enough opportunities to try to beat the man coverage on the perimeter to other receivers right? like they did with Darby on the first drive. And Colorado on some of these RPO or straight run concepts, they had defensive backs that were coming up as unblocked defenders who were there to make tackles. There needed to be some more 
creative approaches, some delay screens to Benjamin, some slips for Benjamin, some more getting under center, running more play actions. It needed to be different things other than the handoffs that they did to Benjamin in those three series in the, in the third quarter after their first successful one. And before we talk about the creativity that was different between Lavishka Chanel and, and, and Nikhil Harry, I want to talk a little bit about the hit that Nikhil Harry took that injured, seemed like his right hip, thigh area that you were talking about, Chris. And he, he took that hit uh, right around nine minutes to go in the third quarter. And after that, it seemed like he wasn't really able to move much at all. He was in a little bit as a decoy, but fans were talking about whether or not it looked like Drew Lewis came from the sideline. We saw on replay that he was blocked out of bounds and that he did come back in. What did you guys make of that play? So even watching the game live, I did not recognize exactly what happened. I saw that he came from the sideline, and I'm like, okay, that's weird. He obviously must have been blocked out. Well, then throughout the game, as the game's going on, they didn't initially show an all-22 replay. Twitter starts blowing up as we're sitting there in the press box people talking about he actually did, you know, come from the sideline. Some people then, you know, conspiracy theorists, like he was he on the play to start or, or not or whatever, okay? What, what ended up happening is Drew Lewis starts in the middle of the formation. He runs out to the toward the boundary, gets pushed out of bounds. Colorado's uh, stadium has a very small spaces on the sidelines, Okay. So as Drew Lewis is, is pushed out of bounds, he actually makes contact with or appears to make contact with his head coach, McIntyre. And then because they're so tightly packed with bodies, he, for whatever reason, decides to run around maybe eight to ten guys and before coming back into the field of play. As Nikhil Harry is just randomly working around to that side, probably didn't see him, gets hit in a big way. Now, we looked at the rule after this happened. The rule states that a player when blocked out of bounds, has to make an immediate attempt to return inbounds, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't view that as an immediate attempt to return inbounds. Not if you run behind a whole bunch of guys at speed. He could have slowed down and come back inside, come back inside into the field of play if he wanted to. The officials appeared to be really caught off guard by this. I don't think that they recognized it. Normally, if somebody gets pushed out, <laughs> out of bounds, you see a hat come right. down or whatever, but normally it's a gunner on the outside. It wasn't a gunner. It was an interior player. You almost never see that happen. Yeah, he was next to the long slapper on this play. Right. So there was some some inquiry with the officials on the on the field, apparently, by Herm Edwards after the game. And they were told that it was a legal play. And then we didn't check, but, but ASU checked with the Pac-12 office and were told that they viewed it as not a penalty. Now, as the as the rule book, as reflected by the rule book, I think that it's a penalty, but I don't think it was anything that Drew Lewis like maliciously did or anything like that. Like people were clamoring yeah. for this to be something that I don't think that it was. It's just a dude running, gets knocked out of bounds. He's like going in a certain direction. Okay, I'm just gonna run around these guys and come back. Into yeah, the field he w- he was asked about it after the game. His quote was, "I got double teamed at first, pushed out of bounds, almost hit coach." I kind of just kept on going because I knew that the play was still going on. When I got back inbounds, I don't think he, referring to Harry, saw me at all, so I just blindsided him. Now, um, at the same time, I think it should be a penalty. I, I, I don't think I think that what's going to happen from this 
is the Pacto office is going to look at the film. They're going to see what happened, and they're going to make an emphasis to teams, hey, you guys have to try to come back into the field of play immediately. You can't be running around on the sidelines for 20 yards. <laughs> and I feel like that's Literally, tough, though, for ASU, because I feel like, I mean, we, we said that about the targeting, uh, the targeting potential spot foul. We're saying that now about uh, potentially coming back immediately. So I think ASU fans are a little bit upset that they're on the receiving end of these conversations yeah, that start. I mean, but like these are just kind of plays that happen throughout a game. I mean, that's like true. If you think back to the Michigan State game, um, it wasn't a penalty, but like Manny Wilkins fumbled a football that should have been a scoop and score touchdown that wasn't. I think you can make these sorts of arguments back that's and true. forth. I don't definitely don't think there's any kind of conspiracy. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's a don't. very like you're 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 going out a little bit too far if you talk about that. Like for instance, Landman's one of their best players. He right. gets targeting. It's upheld on review. Then Crosswell gets a targeting. And they overturn it, right. and he's able to play. Now, people th- will say that ball wasn't caught, and there's a pretty good argument that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, so. uh, in terms of the usage between Chanel and, and, and Harry, Chanel had 13 receptions for 126 yards, two touchdowns, and he had five rushes for 13 yards and two touchdowns. He was all four of Colorado's touchdowns on the day. Nikhil Harry had three receptions for 62 yards, one rush for two yards. But, Chris, you think that Nikhil Harry was – very much in the game plan for ASU in the first half. Absolutely. If you uh, going back and you and you look at it, probably half of their plays from snap that weren't just like obvious handoffs right. to Benjamin, he was part of the play. Some of them were RPOs, but um, they made an emphasis to get the ball to Nikhil Harry in, in in a variety of ways, and they were trying to set up some other opportunities by moving him into the backfield and motioning him into the slot. Well, part of that maybe is maybe Manny Wilkins didn't target him when he had a one-on-one, when when he could have, right? And maybe that's coaching. But I I think after he got hurt, he gets hurt with almost nine minutes left, right? Well, at that point in the game, he doesn't get targeted anymore, and he's sort of a decoy. Now, this isn't to suggest that ASU is as creative as Colorado is at getting the ball to Chanel. Because I don't think ASU is as creative. But I think the difference is that this is... Their their passing concepts and their whole coaching system is in the second year of doing this with Chanel versus Rob Likens in his first year as a coordinator and the offense being somewhat different yeah. than, than what they did with Napier. So I think like if you had Manny Wilkins for another year under Rob Likens... And Nikhil Harry. <laughs> yeah, that's the tough thing. What? And the tough thing that, like, what Jack just mentioned, you probably don't get Nikhil Harry though after this year, and this is the second year but, you get. Shot. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. What, I, what I'm saying is, if this was the second year of continuity right. with mm-hmm. Likens, with yeah. Wilkins, Harry, I think that I think they would be doing more things mm-hmm. creat- creatively. And it's not that they're not. I just want to reiterate, they've moved. Nikhil Harry's getting direct snaps yeah. in the Secretariat, right? Nikhil Harry's been moved around the formation all over the place. Right. But they but they don't have enough creative run replacement plays to get the ball to Harry, I it, think. Yeah. And in terms of in terms of Manny Wilkins' game, he completed 12 of 18 passes for 212 yards, one touchdown. He had some long completions though in this game, the 72-yarder to Frank Darby, 40 yards earlier in the game to Frank Darby as well. That was the touchdown, the nice touchdown pass in between double coverage, a uh, 30-yard completion to Nikhil Harry. He only They only attempted 18 passes, and he didn't 
quite seem content with ASU's game management at points. What did you guys think of how he played? Uh, I thought I thought Wilkins played played decently well. I think that he was under pressure a lot in the first half, is which is something that we noted. Uh, there are a couple of plays where you could see him really get drilled after releasing a throw, um, and on his last throw. Yes, and on his <laughs> last throw. Um, I think obviously the double clutching the snap on the goal line was a crucial point in this game for for Wilkins. Um, that being said, he also had that that throw to Darby, which we talked about was perfectly uh, placed in, in double coverage uh, for the touchdown. So I think that that Wilkins, it, you know, people will use him as a scapegoat for all of ASU's offensive problems, but I really don't think that that's what happened here. Um, and in, in talking about what Chris spoke about a little bit earlier about creativity, uh, you know, Wilkins is clearly doing the best he can to get the ball to Harry right. as often as he could, and he did that early in the first half. But uh, you know, Colorado is just a lot further in their development, and I think I think Montez is more comfortable in their offense uh, than Wilkins might be moving forward. I I think the the real I think what kind of leads to this narrative, you know, oh Manny Wilkins might not be doing enough. Um, ASU's the margin of error for ASU's offense, and now four of their six games, or if it's six games, has been so small. Like against Michigan State, against San Diego State, this game against Washington, for for the Sun Devils to win those games because of some of the challenges they've had defensively and in, in getting off the field and and you know trying to figure out what their offensive identity is, they don't have a lot of when Manny Manny Wilkins needs to make almost all of his plays. And when he doesn't, they kind of stick out perfect example in this game is not throwing the ball away after he double clutches the snap because he, he said post game he thought he was going to be able to evade the tackler in the backfield and when he doesn't it becomes this big thing because then they can't finish off that drive um you know past weeks it's because he, he's been a little bit off with his deep throws right. where you know other times it might go overlooked it's oh well you know Wilkinson hit those big throws that's why ASU didn't score more points I mean he was pretty efficient in this game he only mm-hmm. They only asked him to throw the ball 18 times. He finished with a better passer rating than Steven Montez did. Um, maybe he could have made a few more sharper reads and RPO kind of stuff. But it's just tough when you don't have your top target. Your your offensive line is, is struggling to kind of figure out run blocking in the second half, and you're only on the field for 10 minutes. You pretty much have to play perfectly. He was somewhat close to that, but when but because he wasn't, um, it, it stands out, and it kind of allows people, I think, to to point to him as the leader of the offense and say, well, you didn't make these two or three plays throughout the course of a game that, you know, you can play the what-if game. If you had, uh, things might have been different. So I don't think he's playing poorly. I don't think, like, I think he's playing per, about where he was last year, yeah. in my opinion. Um, and it's just that there's other factors that, with what are going on and the fact that they're, they're taking the ball out of his hand more a little bit and running it uh, more than they did last year that is kind of leading to all of this. I just think there's not a big margin for error the way that they're playing. Like Their defense is not getting enough stops. They're not getting mm-hmm. enough. Like They had no sacks against Montez. They didn't, pass, they didn't even send blitzers. No. They're getting beaten in zone. They're giving up too many third down conversions. And then when you run the ball as much as they are, it means that there's fewer opportunities ASU was on schedule in the first half, like I said earlier, five of six. It was because of them being unable to get yardage, mostly in run plays, Mm -hmm. in the third quarter that they were off schedule. And then they guys that didn't beat some some coverage situations, and then Harry's hurt. 
So, uh, and I think play calling was a little bit of that in the third quarter. I don't think that he necessarily played poorly or really, I don't think anybody played poorly except maybe Curtis Hodges not coming up with a couple balls. And then maybe uh, ASU, um, ASU's protections not being great in some instances. And then there was a couple of uh, uh, false start penalties. Case Tucker had two. There's one on Quinn Bailey. There's some of those mistakes. Yeah, and moving on from the offense to the defense after the Sun Devils got a stop on the first drive of the game. Colorado controlled the tempo uh, of some of the first half and, and scored touchdowns on three of their next four drives. Steven Montez had a pretty complete game, 23 of 33 passes completed for 328 yards, two touchdowns, just three carries, though, for 17 yards. But like Chris was saying, he really wasn't pressured much. No sacks. ASU had five TFLs on the day. Trevon McMillan was very successful rushing 30 times for 136 yards, a steady average of 4.5 yards per carry, and he, he really helped uh, Colorado ice the game late. Uh, what did you guys think of how ASU's defense was able to perform in this game? Yeah, well, you mentioned like the five tackles for loss. Those only went for six yards or six lost yards. Like they just weren't getting enough negative plays. Um, something that's become a problem the last couple weeks is they haven't been good in contain at all, whether it be the quarterback or setting an edge on a run play. Um, they're allowing guys to get to the perimeter of their defense too often. And then on top of that, their cornerbacks and safeties aren't tackling very well. Um, the defense where it is right now, it's, it's this very interesting dynamic because it's giving up less plays than it did last year. It's giving up fewer points than it did last year. Um, or less or fewer big plays, pardon me. Fewer big plays, fewer points, but it's, it's also, it's, it's not, it, it feels like it's still struggling because they aren't making enough of their down stops. And there are these stretches that come in games where, teams can just go on these long drives that really suck the life out of the game and keep ASU's offense on the sideline. Um, I mean, the Sun Devils ran less than 60 plays in this game, but it's really tough to, to score a lot of points and win when your offense is, is being kept on the sideline for that long a period of a time. So it's different problems than they've had in years past, and, and you know these are probably problems that show the defense has made some, some incremental improvements, but there's still a ways for them to go before they can be considered – a defense that's really helping you win games. It still feels like defensively, when they have success, it's it's almost in spite of the defense. There have been a lot of turnovers. Um, you know, it's just like their coverages, their zone coverages, they don't look very comfortable in sometimes, and there's busts. Just all that stuff that kind of combines to allow teams to, to control a game on you. Yeah, I think what happened this game is a lot of what we talked on the uh, premium podcast when we were previewing Colorado is that there's a lot of uh, pre-snap movement and there's a lot of there's a lot of moving pieces that that force ASU and you know all opposing linebackers uh, that, that Colorado plays to make decisions and with such a young linebacker core uh, that, that the ASU has they just weren't able to fill the gaps always correctly and be able to uh, you know have Chanel be covered by different guys and have the communication set with that and I think what Jack mentioned about the zone coverage is especially true we we um, noticed a few plays in our film review today where uh, we would get, you know, ASU would have would have uh, one-on-one coverage to the boundary or to the far side of the field, and there would be a lack of communication between somebody like Chase Lucas or Demonte King, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, wide receiver will just run past, and you would, whether it be Tony Brown or LaVisca Chenault will just run past and get a free look at the end zone. So there's, uh, you know... They are ball-watching on some cover threes that, that led to a couple of deep passes. Right, it's, it seems to be zone coverage that ASU is really struggling with, um... 
right now and and just moving forward it's just it's a young defense with a new defensive coordinator and I think that uh, you know fans have to be able to accept this sort of this grace period where they're where they're trying to uh, instill it all because San Diego State wasn't built in a day you know that that three three five wasn't built uh, by just implementing it the first year and it seemed like the corners were really exposed for ASU here Chris I mean uh, Chase Lucas who hasn't played up to the way that I know that he expects himself to be playing. He had a tough game giving up a couple different touchdowns uh, to Chanel. And Kobe Williams, who's been pretty solid for ASU this year, a guy that you've been talking a lot about on the podcast, of somebody that's been doing his job pretty well. He gave up uh, a score. It just looked like this was a tough game where ASU secondary didn't do as well as it would have liked. Yeah, I think uh, Chase Lucas is going to want to have that game back. He had the first... Uh, first big play that he gave up was man coverage and cover two and Demonte King gets caught with his kind of coming up against the I guess he thought maybe it was going to be uh, a play underneath but or, or a run play I don't I didn't really understand it watching it back but he should have been there over the top on a, on a play that was that deep but um Chase Lucas was in bump coverage and and he just doesn't get a reroute and he ends up trailing the whole play. Uh, and then and then the next uh, play that Chase Lucas gave up was actually cover three, where he should be bailing at the snap, and that was against Nixon, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And and so he's he should be bailing. His eyes are in the in the backfield, and he's just kind of coasting as Nixon just runs by him. He should never give up anything vertical of him right. on, that, on that play. Um, so those are, you know, two big plays. And, and and to this point in the season, to this point in the season, ASU really hadn't given up a lot of these bigger touchdown plays like that. The other thing is that the tackling was bad. Mm-hmm. Tackling was really bad in this game. A lot of missed tackles. Taron Adams came into the game in the second series, right away had a missed tackle. Uh, then he had a, a, a coverage bust after that. He had another coverage bust in the second half uh, going in. Uh, a lot of a lot of yards after initial contact by McMillan. There was a play in which Karan Crump, Jalen Bates, and Renault Wren all missed, all whiffed on a tackle. Correct. And then I think that there's another missed tackle by DeMonte King on the rest of that play. Correct. So McMillan got a lot of yards after contact, 30 yards, 130, 136. 30 carries for 136, pardon me. Um, and then you had, of course, Chenault. You know, he uh, he twisted Kobe Williams into the ground on that one play. Um, it's just, it, it just wasn't a good look. You, right. can't, you, you, you can't give up that many big plays and have that many missed tackles mm-hmm. and expect to win on the road. Yeah, and moving from uh, something on the defense, some news reporting today that we're reporting, actually, Chris, in fact, senior linebacker Kron Crump is no longer with Arizona State football, according to multiple sources close to the development. Uh, Crump didn't immediately return a request for a comment on the decision, but he's expected to continue working on getting his explosiveness back, and he is expected to prepare for ASU's pro day next spring. Chris, can you tell us any more on that? So basically, everybody kind of knows Crump tore his ACL uh, more than a year ago, 13 months now, right. against Texas Tech on the road. Um, the year before that, he had nine sacks, third in the Pac-12. He was a leading returning uh, player in the conference in sacks, but uh, he got hurt. 
Um, his recovery process, I think, was a lot longer than anticipated. Everybody kind of has different, you know, recoveries and how that goes. Sometimes guys get back seven, eight months. Right. He wasn't really at 100%, hardly practiced at all in August, as everybody probably knows from our reporting. And additionally, this coaching staff really has a different type of a way that it uses its outside linebackers. Whereas Crump was a dedicated pass rusher at the double backer position in the previous defense, you have to be able to drop and cover and be better against the run in this scheme. That really didn't materialize. Mm-hmm. And so he was really viewed as a, as a sub-package type of a player. He only had three tackles despite playing in, yeah. in all six games and, and basically decided that he was going to shut it down, try to get his explosiveness back to what it was before the injury, get bigger and stronger because he's going to need to be in order to have a chance to play at the next level. And so that's what he's doing. All right, moving on to around the Pac-12 news of how ASU and, and the rest of the conference did in, in Week 6. Cal favored by 2.5 points. They lost at Arizona 24-17. Number 7, Washington held off UCLA at the Rose Bowl 31-24. Washington State defeated Oregon State in Corvallis 56-37. to Chris said his lock of the week was essentially how many points were in that game, and you would have been correct, Chris, on the over in that game. It's like 30 more than... Yeah, it was a lot more. Uh, Utah went into Palo Alto and defeated... Then number 14, Stanford, 41-20. And Colorado, who was 21, beat ASU 28-21. How did Utah score 40 points on Stanford? That well, offense. Did, I mean, David Shaw, after the game, said that his team is soft and that it is uh, uh, the least physical team he's coached in a long time, which I was shocked that he would say that. That's what Bill Self said after ASU beat Kansas. <laughs> and, and they came back, no problems. Uh, yeah. All right, maybe, all right. This is the worst Kansas team I've yeah, ever seriously. had. So, so how do you guys think the league's done halfway through the year? Schizophrenic, man. Yeah, schizophrenic. Yeah, nobody knows. <laughs> like, where do you rank Stanford at this point in the league? They're not ranked. No, 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 no. no, no. Oh, in it, the where league. do you rank them in the Pac-12? I mean, before this, before this game, literally, it was Stanford and Washington, and maybe Oregon, yeah. kind of, you know, scraping in there somewhere, mm-hmm. and now it's like. I don't know. Like we did our Pac-12 power rankings, I had no idea where to put Stanford and where to put Utah, and and where to where to put Colorado. There's a lot of parity in the league this year. Yeah, it's crazy, but not. It's almost not like the good kind of parity though. Right. There's, and I think so. Like Washington, no Washington and Oregon play this week in a, in a massive game, and it feels like, like if Oregon wins that game, like Washington feels like the only legitimate playoff contender the Pac-12 still has. Because Oregon with a loss to Stanford, like maybe if Oregon runs the table, but it's just, you know, we kind of entered the year knowing that the South wasn't going to be good. The North was going to need its top teams to play well. And to this point, those teams have, it's just been, it's been uh, like Washington State might be better than Stanford right now. I don't think that's a. I don't think that's. <laughs> no, no. I, okay, they, I mean, uh, they might. Oh, I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Stanford. You think Washington Stanford State hasn't is looked definitely Stanford? Stanford well, definitely might be strong, but but like it wouldn't surprise me now if Washington State goes and beats Stanford. And I think this is the whole thing with the conference. Like USC and Colorado play this week, and you could bill that almost as oh, this is the game. Like the, this could be the winner of the Pac-12 South. But at the same time, both these teams could go on and lose like two or three more games. So it's just yeah. If if Washington loses to Oregon, they're I mean obviously not getting to the playoff because a two loss. Even if Washington goes on to win the Pac-12. A two-loss 
champion of the Pac-12 is not going to get in the playoff. And I think that what we assumed, Stanford, Oregon, Washington, to be the top of the North, has kind of played out in that way. Obviously, Washington has panned out, but Oregon uh, has struggled, and they definitely need to be Washington to have a chance at that division. And Stanford and Utah, it just seems... uh, so confusing where to put the Utes at this point, and uh, you know the South is just wide open. Utah has a really tough schedule, and just mm-hmm. and so now they could be sort of coming to life a little bit here. I think I, I do think that there's a good possibility that the USC Colorado winner from this weekend, that team is going to win the South. Well, I'd say I, I agree with that. For I'd sure. say if USC, this is like the tough. This might be the toughest game for left sure. on USC's schedule. Pretty pretty for sure. So if USC wins, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> uh, a- any more takes on, on no, the back toll quickly, guys? I think we've covered it. All right. It's kind of off the rails. Yeah, it kind of is getting off the rails. Uh, in well, terms of ASU. The Pac-12 is off the rails. But the I guess Pac-12 the is definitely is off the rails. Um, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> in terms of ASU basketball, we will have a preseason basketball segment on our member-only podcast well, which we will be releasing later this week, so stay tuned for that. We'll have our preseason picks and predictions for how Bobby Hurley's fourth team in Tempe is going to do. But right now, alongside staff reporters Jack Harris and Max Madden, as well as site publisher Chris Gartman, I'm your host Rob Warner saying so long and thank you for tuning in. <laughs>